Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Theresa May's premiership is over, quitting number 10 Downing Street and acknowledging that she was unable to deliver the Brexit she promised. With the road ahead for her Conservative Party and for the government so opaque, can history offer directions or warnings? You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And on Queen Victoria's 200th birthday, we're asking, are the Victorians a model for Brexit Britain? My two guests were at one time on opposing sides of the political divide. Jacob Rees-Mogg shares a birthday with Queen Victoria. He's the Conservative MP for North East Somerset and one of the most vocal Brexiteers in Parliament, a leading figure in bringing down Mrs May's leaving deal. His new book, The Victorians, champions in his words, the 12 titans who forged Britain. He joined me at an Intelligence Square debate in London on May the 21st, just three days before Mrs May's emotional resignation. Opposite Jacob Rees-Mogg was Tristram Hunt, a former Labour Education Secretary, now Director of the Victoria and Albert Museum, and a historian. I started by asking Mr Rees-Mogg how he went about whittling his subjects down to a dozen, and why, as we bid farewell to a female Prime Minister and celebrate a past Queen, he included only one woman – Victoria herself. It was completely arbitrary. I chose 12 people I thought would be fun to write about um, who are really important in the Victorian period. I I wasn't trying to do some politically correct exercise. That wasn't my objective. (laughs) But when you say it's completely arbitrary, so just to to give a a flavour, we've got a a lot of politicians, not uh, unsurprisingly, giving your your job. You have a a lot of administrators, a lot of colonial administrators, which has obviously brought up the question uh, of empire. Perhaps not a lot of culture. The the, the standout omission there might be Dickens. But was that because you felt that culture doesn't really count in the same way of forging Britain as the characters you chose? I mean, actually, no. If I'd gone for culture, I'd gone for Trollope rather than Dickens, um, who I prefer. Actually, do you know, I might have cheated and had P.G. Woodhouse, who just creeps in. But I thought that having somebody who did most of his writing in the 20th 20th century would be too much of a cheat. Um, But Trollope is amazing. And, of course, they're so incredibly commercial, writing things that are published week in, week out. And they're so wonderful to read, because at the end of each chapter, you want to find out what's going on next, uh, as you might do... Uh, watching a soap opera, say, with Dallas, do you remember who shot J.R.? And Trollope's doing much the same thing to keep people going. So I could have included Trollope, who I would have preferred rather than Dickens. He's a bit boring, don't you think? Anyway, sorry about that. Um, uh, But I I didn't have him. I thought that 
actually the daring do ones were more exciting to write about. And the one woman I wrote, the most emails I had in the run-up to this event were about the lack of women. Now, obviously, you couldn't get around Queen Victoria, right? So she, well, I didn't want to get around Queen Victoria. She made she's terrific. <laughs> she's terrific, and she made the cut. But no other woman. Now, you can argue that's arbitrary, but it, it does seem odd to only possibly have one woman when you, when you had at your possible disposal Florence Nightingale, Bronte's. Um, you could look to the pioneers of women's health care, Josephine Butler, Marie Curie. I could go on. I'm not suggesting you should have had them all. But did you think of having more women? No, I, I didn't. Um, that I thought of some individual women, and I did think of having Florence Nightingale, who I'm afraid I thought was too obvious. Everyone writes about Florence Nightingale, and even straight she was quite nice about Florence Nightingale. So what, what new was there to say, other than she's absolutely marvellous? And that's three words, and I needed about 10,000 a chapter. So it's going to be pretty difficult to find the remaining 9,997 words to keep the publisher happy. Um, but... The Victorian era, whether we like it or not, was a very masculine era. That There were no women MPs, there were no women politicians. And I expect if you look at the Dictionary of National Biography, you will find that the overwhelming entries are for men, because until the 20th century, in particular the 21st century, it has been a mainly male-run society. Now, that has changed. So if I were writing um, a book about eminent... Uh, Elizabethans, it would be a very different book. It would certainly have Margaret Thatcher in it. Uh, and, and so I think you've got to deal with the time you're dealing with. And if I'd evened the numbers up or anything like that, it would have been essentially bogus. It would have been pretending the Victorian era was other than it was. It was a very male era. Well, we're seated in, in, in the shadow here of the Elizabeth Garrett Anderson wing of University College Hospital. And I think... When we think of the 19th century, there was a phenomenal contribution by great female pioneers, and whether it was uh, female medicine, um, whether it was the, the campaign for the vote and the Pankhursts in, in Manchester. Um, in this book, there's a lot about the importance, and we'll probably get onto this, uh, of referenda uh, within the British Constitution, but there isn't much about the fight for women to vote in those referenda. Um, and so I think the, the point about the study of the past is also its, its relevance and feel um, for the present. So I think there is a valid criticism uh, of the absence of female voices within, within this work. But what I would also sort of take issue with, in a sense, is an absence of a focus on, on ideas and the history of ideas. Because... The 19th century is this great radical ferment of thinking. If we think of contemporary notions um, of understanding capitalism, of socialism, of communism, vegetarianism, of feminism, all of this flows out of some of the big thinkers uh, of the mid-19th century. So and who also, would you deem essential that you can then put your challenge to, to Jacob and he can tell you what well, you think? Well, I, I, I would have Cobden, I'd have Richard Cobden, who, who was the great uh, liberal thinker. He was the co-author of the 1860 Cobden Chevalier Treaty between Britain and France, which reduced duties between trading countries in Europe, which seemed to me quite a good 
idea, uh, which then had uh, far-flowing uh, implications. Uh, and of course, out of kind of almost filial loyalty, I would have, if not Friedrich Engels, uh, who, who I wrote about, uh, Karl Marx, who, whose journey from Chalk Farm to the British Museum in Bloomsbury would have taken him again just past here. So I'd definitely have Marx, I'd have Cobden, I'd have had John Stuart Mill. But you the problem always the is you'd keep going. <laughs> <laughs> and you'd have a woman in there? Oh, absolutely. I'd have the Pankhursts. Yeah, um, but I, I'd also have Annie Besant, actually. You, you, look, you look suddenly taken and flown away by the thought of Annie Besant. <laughs> Karl Marx, I suppose, obviously a, a, a world you challenged. Would that cross your mind, or indeed Engels? Any of Tristram's well, list? I mean, I think Karl Marx has led to more disaster in the 20th century and more deaths than almost anybody else, so I didn't want to have somebody of his ilk in my book. Um, uh, John Stuart Mill is clearly a substantial figure, and Cobden is a very interesting figure. So, yes, of course, but I don't, I'm not trying to say that these are the only 12 people that you can have. I'm saying that they are 12 important and interesting people. I was also, in some cases, though by no means all cases, interested to have people who've been slightly overlooked and forgotten about, and particularly in relation to Gordon, somebody whose reputation had been completely trashed. And I thought it was more interesting to write about somebody whose reputation had fallen from extraordinary heights. Um, statues to Gordon were put up all over the empire after he died. Um, Gladstone got known as the Mog, which wasn't complimentary, even in Rees Mogg terms. Uh, it stood for murderer of Gordon. Uh, uh, just gloss Gordon for us, just for the, the audience and uh, the audience indeed beyond this hall. Gordon is an extraordinary figure who um, is in the army. He goes out and fights uh, in China for the Chinese emperor. He, ha he has this extraordinary reputation, and so there's a popular clamor for him to go out to Khartoum, which is a completely idiotic place to send him, as everybody recognizes, because he's a great uh, leader of forces. He is not a man to lead a retreat. So he goes out basically to lead a retreat, but he has a great zeal to crack the slave trade which is going on in the Sudan and he feels he cannot do this by surrendering Khartoum and so he decides that instead of retreating he will keep Khartoum. Khartoum is besieged then for months until whenever it is January um, uh, 1885 and he dies in that heroic way that you expect um, Englishman to die, that there he is in full uniform as governor general at the top of the stairs, the spears come crashing into him, and the um, relieving force is not quite there, it's almost there, too late, too late to save him, in vain, in vain they tried, his life was England's glory, his death was England's pride, and everyone was furious and blamed Gladstone for not helping out earlier, including the Queen, and the Queen does the equivalent of going down to Windsor Post Office to send Gladstone a telegram saying, you've let Gordon down, he's been murdered, and it's all your fault. And, of course, everybody on the post office stations along the way reads this out and reads it to their neighbour, so everybody gets to know how cross uh, the, the, the Queen is, perhaps like Her Majesty telling Michael Gove she was in favour of Brexit, but perhaps that's not the sort of thing I should mention. Um, uh, and, and so, allegedly. Allegedly. A, a voice allegedly. from the palace has just appeared <laughs> in my left ear. Um, and and that, that, is, that is Gordon. He is an absolutely heroic figure um, who believes in things and is willing to die for things. And one of the great things about so many of these Victorians is that Gordon believed 
that all life was of equal value. So when he's fighting in China, he believes Chinese life is of equal value to English life. And most people in England at the time don't think that. And it's a very remarkable and noble view of the world. It's one of the reasons I like him so much. Well, let's pivot a bit to the, the present, and particularly looking at the role of the, the great constitutional uh, theorist, Dicey, who you obviously have great admiration for. This remarkable man, you say, ensured that a true understanding of the Constitution is an absolute subject for romanticism, which is of continuing benefit to the nation. The British Constitution is a model that works better than those in other nations. Well, I mean, we meet uh, tonight, uh, still in the middle of the never-ending story of the aftermath of the referendum. We don't know which in European institutions we're in or out of. So whether you're Brexiteer or Remainer, what gives you the confidence that this constitution is still working? Right. I may be about the only person in the world, um, other than the great and distinguished Vernon Bogdaner, who thinks that the Constitution is an, an object of romanticism, but I think we have the most beautiful Constitution uh, that has been terribly perverted by two things. One is the 1972 European Communities Act, and the other of immediate effect is the 2011 Fixed-Term Parliament Act, which has led to us having the first adult parliament since 1614. Did, you, did you vote against it? Yes, the whole time. Very good. We're in the same lobby. I thought it was dreadful. <laughs> <laughs> it was a dreadful act that yeah. completely failed to understand how a constitution yeah. works. Yeah, there you're right. Um, and we are suffering. Well, this is, this is mean, going to be... A, yeah. Yeah, you no, might just want to go to your happy place. We'll get them back, back onto things that they <laughs> want to debate in a moment. So, when you've stopped loving each other... Right, right, right. Just we'll, we'll get back to disagreeing in a minute. <laughs> but, but, but no, Dicey... Um, understands the sovereignty of Parliament, and he develops the phrase, the rule of law, that comes from Dicey. And these are principles that are very valuable to our understanding of how we are governed. And he develops a theory of referendums on the basis that the House of Lords no longer works, something that could be accurately said in the reign of Queen Victoria and could be accurately said in the reign of Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, that it's an idea of how you make your constitution function so that it reflects what people say, but it doesn't get changed necessarily too quickly, and that you have an ultimate authority, which is Parliament acting on behalf of the people. And you have the rule of law, which are the conventions that we've historically operated within. And I think that's tremendously important. How we are governed is very important. And Dicey is the first person to set it out with that level of clarity. And he's held in 1892 promoting the referendum as the way to guard the rights of the nation against the usurpation of national authority by any party which happens to have a majority. So what is it that you're taking away from this constitutional thinker you admire that informs your politics now about the referendum, about what to do next, and what is now going to happen? Well... When, I, when you've had a referendum, I think you should clearly implement the result. That, I think, is a key point, that referendums are there with an authority. They are not there uh, just for the fun of it, to give people something to do on a Thursday in June. And that should be followed through. His view of the referendum and the Lords was he'd come to the conclusion that the Lords were simply too Tory and therefore would block all uh, liberal legislation, and that therefore you needed something other than a House of Lords that was going to be able to do that, and that a referendum could answer problems that the politicians couldn't answer for themselves. And actually, I think that was true with leaving the European Union, that the politicians couldn't come up with an answer. We've had that referendum. It should now be implemented. A parliament should get on and implement it. The flaw at the moment 
is the Fixed Term Parliament Act, which means we have a parliament that is quite incapable of doing anything. And two weeks ago, we were voting on the Wild Animals in Circuses Bill, and that's the last bit of legislation that we've done. And how many of them are there? there are 18 or 19. People say one of them had died. So one of these poor animals that was in the circus is now a deceased circus animal. Does Dicey, or perhaps I'll put it to you and then back to Tristan, does Dicey help us much further when you end up in a logjam? When the referendum result is close, as you would concede that it was, the way forward is perhaps not as simple as, as saying you have a result, now get on with it. When Parliament really cannot decide what kind of a Brexit it would like to deliver, and when the kind of Brexit that you stand for in the European reform group is not shared even by other so-called soft Brexiteers, the picture you must concede is not as clear as you might have suggested by bringing Dicey in as your uh, oh, kind I, I think, helmsman here. I think Dicey would have recognised in these circumstances we would have had to have had another general election and have a parliament that can deliver one way or another and that that's the problem. The logjam is that this parliament carries on even though the government does not command a majority in parliament for its routine business. So you're really in favour of a general election, you and Jeremy Corbyn? Uh, no, I'm, as I'm uh, looking at the opinion polls, the last thing I want is a general election. Um, <laughs> but constitutionally, it, it would be uh, a, a way of getting out of the situation, which is what I'm sure Dicey would be proposing if he were here. What do we take from Dicey, or indeed from any Victorian thinker of note that would get us out of the, the Brexit mess? I mean, I th th this is one of the intriguing contradictions of the book, is that Many of the chapters are celebrations uh, of Parliament and representative democracy and the great battles between Gladstone and Disraeli, uh, Peel, uh, Palmerston. Uh, and yet where Jacob wants to sort of get, in a sense, is taking that power from Parliament to the people through um, a referenda, which Margaret Thatcher, and this might be one of your few areas of disagreement with her, always thought were the tools of continental despots and authoritarians. Whereas in here, with, with, with Dicey, there's a celebration of it. I think one of the areas of tension, and if I was cleverer than I am, I would have brought it up when I was still a member of parliament, is that in the late 19th century and early 20th century, there was a much, partly because of the conversations around home rule and elsewhere, there was a much richer understanding of the United Kingdom as a combination of multiple kingdoms. And if you were going to have um, a seismic change which came through a referendum, you would seek to have a majority in each of the constituent nations of the United Kingdom. Uh, and that was absolutely embedded uh, in the thinking in, in the 1900s uh, and 1910s. When we had the referenda... So you had to um, win it everywhere? You had to win it everywhere. Oh, that's a high um, well, But you had to win it because it was an acknowledgement of, of, a, of a united kingdom, of multiple kingdoms. But clearly by the 1970s and also today, it was a kind of uniform vote across, across the country. The, the celebration of... The British Constitution, which, which, which Jacob celebrates in this book, is a very 19th century idea that what came out of the mid-19th century through the works of Macaulay and Trevelyan and elsewhere was this Whiggish story of kind of British exceptionalism as a result of our constitutional settlement going back to 1688 and the Glorious Revolution. And 
You see this in another chapter in the book, which is the one on Augustus Pugin around Parliament. And so the rebuilding of Parliament in the 1840s and 1850s is this incredible process of backslapping about British, uh, the British Constitution and, and, and the wonder uh, of the British Constitution, which is then embedded in the fabric uh, of Parliament. So I think in that sense, you are very Victorian. Uh, yeah. in bringing this together. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I, I, I um, always enjoy the um, European committee debates, which usually take place in committee room 10, where there is a huge picture of King Alfred fending off the Danes. And I think metaphorically that tells us what we should be doing, not that I've got anything against the Danes. Um, uh, but it, it, absolutely right. The whole of the House of Parliament is a celebration of our Constitution and all the um, decorative work, the pictures... All of it is a bold assertion that we have a fantastic constitution um, if, if only we uh, hadn't meddled with it. If only we hadn't meddled with it. Let's look forward and see how your, your views of what happens next are informed by the past and by your interpretation of, of the past. The Guardian's reviewer said that this, your book, was biography as manifesto. The real purpose, Catherine Hughes said, the Victorians... In, in your version, is to reflect Rhys Mogg back to himself at twice his natural size. Ouch. Well, it's a bit rude, but it's also basically saying that this is part of a, of a manifesto to, to, to big yourself up or to make your cause seem more right than others. That possibly plays into the future of the Conservative Party uh, and the upcoming vacancy, which I think is now widely conceded to, to exist around the leadership. Is that right? Well, I, I mean, I, I don't think it's particularly rude by the sounds of the Guardian. If that's the rudest they can get, that's a bit pathetic. I, they'd try harder. <laughs> um, but everyone writes books to insist that they're right. You don't write a book to say I've got everything hopelessly wrong, do you? That would be a very odd way of writing a book. I, I'm, I'm puzzled by this as a mode of criticism. Um, but yes, of course, the book and the characters... Uh, fit in with my view of the world. Otherwise, it would have been somebody else's book written by somebody else with other characters. I don't think this is particularly uh, a statement of anything other it's than the obvious. It's quite a Victorian thing to do, to write a so-called manifesto book. Yes, but I mean, it's, you know, I, I, th I think in, in, in the latter half of the 20th century, you know, Kennedy's profiles in encourage studies encourage which was you know uh, a sort of more contemporary version uh, of heroism exactly it's a, it's a, it is a a well-trodden pathway uh, about sort of reflecting the past through through the present and, and bringing out the themes you wish which is why for example it's it, one of one of the i think omissions from, from from my perspective from a sort of although i'm an independent civil servant now from my perspective would be the early joseph chamberlain and the tradition of municipal socialism in 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 victorian britain in this book we hear a lot about one of the the merits of the british constitution is the private property system well actually what civic leaders did was to take on private property uh, and say actually there's a broader public good about water quality, about ownership of utilities, gas and water, about public housing, about public education, uh, about public health. And to cut to the chase, you think that's of, so, underrepresented? Oh, hugely. Neglected. But that, I mean, that's not right, well, kind it, of surprising. But I think, I think, it's, I, I think it's, a, it's a story of the 19th century which, which people perhaps from a different political trajectory will find solace in. Okay, but, uh, I, but I'll, I'll answer that in a number of ways. First of all, Joseph Chamberlain was something I th somebody I thought seriously about putting in. 
Um, and he and Lord Salisbury were both people who could easily be in a book of this kind. Secondly, in the chapters on both Disraeli and on Palmerston, Palmerston, very interestingly, in his period as Home Secretary, much forgotten because everyone thinks of him as Don Pacifico affair and Foreign Secretary and all of that. But actually, as Home Secretary, he was mobbed up as being the Minister for Sewage because he was doing exactly this. And the, one of the great contributions of Disraeli is public health. And Disraeli's Public Health Act is the basis for public health in the United Kingdom until the 1930s. And that, that is in there. And I didn't go into the municipal um, drains. Uh, I went to the national drain, so to speak. And I think, they are, I think it is very important. And some of the most important work of Disraeli is in ensuring, and he puts it as the condition of the people, that the condition of the people gets better, and the condition of the people gets better because they have clean water, and Palmerston was involved in that too. I can't resist a word about it. I want to get you back to, to, to Brexit. Both of you seem to have a huge desire to skitter off from Brexit in, it, in, into drains. Um, <laughs> but I really can't resist the, the, the line on, on Disraeli, which I think comes quite early in your book. And you, you talk about his successful 28-year campaign to make the Conservatives electable again. Is that what it's going to take? <laughs> um, oh, it's very interesting that, that the major split in the party can lead to a very long time before you get back into office. And the Labour Party, after 1979, took 18 years. It took Disraeli and the Conservatives 28 years to get back to majority government after the split over the Corn Laws. They had p brief periods of minority government, but no majority government for 28 years. And does that not worry you then when you think, and I do think this is justifiable, like when you look at that history and that split after the, the Corn Laws, that you could be looking at that now in a party that you hold very dear and to, to which you've devoted your political life? Uh, yes, of course it does. I mean, I, th I think the position for the Conservative Party at the moment is extraordinarily risky uh, that we have ignored our voters and we haven't recognised that things changed that, it's, that the collapse in the Conservatives' poll rating comes after we don't leave on the 29th of March, after the Prime Minister said over 100 times that we will leave on the 29th of March. And then we have the local elections where we lose far more seats than anyone had expected, and we lose them with huge swings. We go from holding seats with two-thirds of the vote to having them lost by two-thirds of the vote against us. And the immediate reaction of the government is to do a stitch-up with the Labour Party. It's sort of politics as normal. Let's ignore what the voters have said. We'll just stitch things up in a back room and we'll sort it all out. I should probably go even-handedly over to Tristram on, on this. Save your blushes politically. Is this the period that you see parallels in the 19th century. What would, your, you know, what would your advice be? And this is purely as a historian, obviously not as a, a, a former Labour figure, for getting out of the mess. I think, I mean, to, to go back to the, the point about the referenda and the constitution, of, you know, the, the nature of the British constitution is that it is unwritten. Uh, and so the notion that Dicey didn't say X in the late 19th century means you can't think about it now doesn't, doesn't necessarily... Um, seem to follow for me, and I think we, we, we do see a quagmire in Parliament, and I think, you're, Jacob, you're absolutely right. On the one hand, the pathway through that in the old days would have been a general election, um, and in, in another way, is what some are suggesting, is, is, is a referendum. I think what we're also seeing, and you might like this as well, although she, she was far more, you know, 
Queen Victoria would have cut through this. Those telegrams to Gladstone were just the tip of the iceberg in terms of she would have uh, had a sort of pretty firm hand on the tiller in the mid-19th century with this. I'm not suggesting uh, the current sovereign should necessarily cut through it. And it was also interesting to note that the comment about Michael Gove, we just had this revelation from a retiring German uh, diplomat that the Queen in 19, what was it, 1992, at a lunch with the German diplomats, was reflecting that Britain's future might lie in Europe. She has all the heritage, so you could understand. You, you, don't, see a, you don't see a role for the present sovereign in, in resolving the crisis. I mean, some people have spoken about the idea of kind of proroguing Parliament and basically upping it a notch, uh, handing it, it, it over to uh, Queen Victoria's descendant. Proroguing Parliament would be a routine exercise of governmental power. It doesn't involve the Queen any more than appointing Penny Mordaunt to replace Gavin Williamson involved the Queen. It is done in the Queen's that name. That was a major constitutional moment. I, I thought you'd say that. Um, and and, and th this gets confused. People say it would involve the Queen. Everything the government does involves the Queen. It is simply done on the advice of the Prime Minister. So do I think the Queen should be saying to Mrs May in the weekly audience, um, I'd do it differently if I were you. I, I, <laughs> I, um, I, I, I think... The, 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 the Queen is, is entitled to encourage uh, and, and to warn and to be consulted. But it's one of the interesting things about Queen Victoria, one of the successes of Queen Victoria, and again, I'm, I'm quoting Vernon Bogdaner in this, but I, I think he's absolutely right, is that our constitutional monarchy is pretty much unchanged from Victoria. Admittedly, Victoria wrote um, letters with more underlinings to her prime ministers than the Queen probably does, and the prime ministers were more regularly in attendance on the Queen, but actually the basic operation of the Constitution would be pretty recognisable to Victoria. She might have fewer arguments over um, the appointment of bishops uh, now than she did with Gladstone. But where do you go yourself in your thinking of, of what follows? You, you suggested or seem to suggest that you might throw your support behind Theresa May's deal. Or was that an interpretation? Where do you now seem to suggest you wouldn't support the deal? Just clear that up for oh, us. I was willing to support Mrs May's deal when the alternative was a worse deal being brought forward and not leaving on the 29th of March. We have now not left on the 29th of March and we've had a worse deal brought forward. So there seems absolutely no reason to support the deal this time round. That could be, as we, we don't really know which the swirl of events we're in gets picked up in the future and ends up in the, the book that's written in 100 years. Hence about this by another ambitious conservative, maybe possibly one of the Rees-Mogg children and beyond. But, um, well, there are but, a lot of them, so one of them might. Certainly, you, you, there's a, certainly a writing factory there. But do, do you worry that that might have been a telling moment, that the moment at which Brexiteers in effect split about whether they would take a demi-Brexit, a modulated, a soft Brexit, a scrambled Brexit, call it what you will. And the ERG, in which you are the leading figure, decided to go the hard way, that that might end up being one of those telling moments which could have unleashed whatever unleashes on the country generally through a Brexit. A very, very difficult period for your party. Well, we could have gone a different way at Meaningful Vote 3. We could have uh, voted it through. We could have got a new leader around that point, And we could then have 
done something different with that new leader. That didn't happen. The ERG has always been united in its objective, which is leaving the European Union cleanly and clearly uh, and not being a vassal state. Are we sure what will have been the decisive moments here? And what do we think that we will look back on, particularly with that prism of a longer period that we've got tonight, uh, and where we think it sort of uh, goes if we we know Tristram? This is a book strongly focused on individuals and individual choices made in made in politics and there's there's no doubt that the the choice made by David Cameron to decide because of fear our, our sort of reading was of of UKIP and concern about the the Conservative Party to to go for a referendum then put in place a structure which then allowed what we've seen right across Europe and America, um, uh, forces um, of uh, some levels populism, um, some levels kind of anti-establishment feeling, some levels of anti-politics, whereas in Europe and America that has flowed through traditional political systems and governments have risen and fallen. In the UK, it's been put into a structure of a referendum, which in theory then could have long-term consequences for the UK. So when we think about what was the, what was the moment of sort of crisis, was it, uh, you would point to a reaction or an overreaction, or actually, um, when, you, when you look at the actions of, of, of some of, kind of uh, Jacob's colleagues, Daniel Hannan and others, David Cameron falling into a very successfully and brilliantly well-prepared trap, um, which then led to the decision to take a referendum. From that decision flows everything else. What happens? Who is your titan of choice and why to take Britain forward? Who is my um, favoured choice? Um, Oh, Boris, I think that from a conservative point of view and indeed from the country's point of view, we need a really big figure. There are lots of excellent candidates uh, within the Conservative Party who could be good prime ministers in ordinary times. This is not ordinary times. I think politics has really changed, and the referendum changed things, and the failure to deliver the referendum has changed the basis of trade between the electorate and politicians, the feeling that Parliament has set its face against the people, and we need somebody who can bring that back together, can deliver the referendum result, can reunite the right of British politics and can make sure that we um, have some confidence in ourselves. What would Queen Victoria have made of all this? My fear is that we will go um, from, from reading Jacob's book on the Victorias back to reading Boris's book on Churchill and try to sort of find our way through. I suppose the unity... Which one did you like more? Well, the unity between them is that Chur- Churchill in many ways was a, was a Victorian figure. So perhaps the kind of the two books work as a... You could do a kind of sort of a bog off, a buy one, get one free kind of sort of Tory history number. Just saying. There's ruthlessly free market here tonight, isn't it, folks? If it sells, why not? Jacob Rees-Mogg and Tristram Hunt with a business idea there to end our debate. And we'd love to know what you think. With Brexit going down to the wire again, does the long view guide us? 
who would have been on your list of leading Victorians on either side of the Atlantic? And are they the model for Brexit Britain and beyond? Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And for more of our journalism, do subscribe at economist.com slash radio offer. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.